college senior, my first of two senior years in college, I had the privilege of moving off campus for the first time. And it was absolutely awesome. Attended a somewhat Baptist college. I call it that because I think that they were less concerned about Jesus and more concerned about who would give them money. Ergo, if you would give them money, they would tend to bow to whatever it is you were requesting. I watched that happen several times while I was in college. But I had a great experience attending a small college. And one of the rules there is you had to live on campus for three years. And so finally, by my first senior year, I was able to move off campus. It was a great year because I got to live with four of my closest friends. Four guys I'm still quite close to. And for the first time in our college experience, we were freed from the restrictions of the dorm. Stuff like lighting candles or vacuuming after 10 p.m. And we were able to rid ourselves of a cafeteria plan, which on the first day of college is amazing and three years later is awful because you've eaten the same thing over and over again. And we were free. I think it's the first time I really felt like it was an, I was an adult, though for the record I should tell you my dad was still paying my bills. But I felt independent. I felt like I was living life as an adult. Now commonly, me and my roommates would go to the grocery store, uh, and it wasn't uncommon for us to go at like 5 o'clock because we had no food. And we would go to the grocery store, and we would try to pick out what we were going to eat for dinner. And inevitably, one of us would head to the meat department. And upon arriving in the meat department, one of us, typically Steve or myself, would pick up an enormous piece of meat. Soon to be followed by the other three guys, we would hold this large piece of meat and then decide we probably can't eat anything else. That this piece of meat is big enough to feed all of us, let's just get this. I don't know how many times that year we ate meat dinners, but it was far too many. In fact, I bet we did it twice a week. I remember we ran into a streak where one of my roommates tried to buy a loaf of French bread weekly, and we kept shooting him down. We don't need the bread. We have the meat. I give that to you this morning because this morning we have some meat. But unlike my college meals, we also have some interesting sides, which is to forecast to you that I believe that there is a strong driving point to our message this morning but there are some side points that deserve our attention that we will look at. The driving force in this is the work of the Holy Spirit, something we'll be looking at this week and next week, and frankly, continuously through the book of Acts. And if you happen to be joining us for the first time, you're a Snazi or Jacobson, and you think the Holy Spirit, you might start thinking we're an utterly charismatic church, and we are not. But we do pay homage and respect to the third person of the Trinity who shows up in the Scriptures. So we're going to spend some time talking about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit over the next couple weeks. And as I said, as we get there, we're going to look at a couple of interesting side stories briefly. Now having said that, we're in the book of Acts in the first chapter. Considering what happened after Jesus died, after Jesus resurrected... And after Jesus ascended, what did the disciples do? Because that becomes for us a footprint for what following Christ looks like. And it becomes a footprint for what are the kinds of things the church should do even 2,000 
years later. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1, verse 12. We'll start there this morning. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. The disciples, having watched Jesus ascend into the sky, the text says ascended into the clouds. It's an Old Testament reference to the Shekinah glory of the Lord. Jesus ascends into a bright light. And now they obey him by returning to Jerusalem, probably a half a day's walk, to await the Holy Spirit. I suspect if we were reading this text, it would be easy for us to just pass through it, or as a minimum, just to consider a transitory text. But this morning, I want to dig in on two different places. We'll stop here first to show us some things of substance. Let's look again at verse 13. Because what you have is a list, and so often when we see lists in scriptures, we just buzz through it, or we just skip, right? Go, oh, it's a list. Keep moving. And we miss that sometimes there's significance to a list. Look at it again. Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Did you catch it? For three years... These guys were sent out in pairs as a group of 12. The number 12 bears some great significance, but it also bears some practicality. Because Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. Even in Luke 10, 1, when Jesus numbers the disciples at 72, he is still regularly sending them out in twos. Which tells us that these disciples were trained by the master to go out in twos. And according to the text here, Judas, the son of James, is now missing his pair. Which will lead us to the main point of the text. But before we get there, we've got to see that. Judas is missing his pair. So when these disciples have a mission, having been exclusively trained to go out in twos, and you look around and there's 11 of you, you do need somebody else. There's a practical nature, and we'll get there. But first we'll stop at another side dish. Verse 14. All of these were one accord, were devoted themselves in prayer. That's the butt of many jokes, right? How did the disciples go? They were all in one accord. You've heard this? You can give me a better laugh than that. (laughs) Honda, Accord, they're all shoved in, 12 of them. All these with one accord were devoted themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. We'll see this throughout the book of Acts, that prayer is one of the great themes of the book, one that they come back to over and over again, that whether they're waiting or they're scared or they're tired or they're successful or they've just been beaten or they've just been imprisoned, these guys would come together to look up to their father who is guiding and directing and leading them 
They were utterly dependent on the Father, but that's not what we're looking at. See, the other side issue that shows up here is the mention of Mary and Jesus' brothers, which are significant and for different reasons. First, this is the last time in the Bible that Mary is mentioned. Now, I point that out to you because there are large sects of people who claim Jesus, who call themselves Roman Catholics, or call themselves Greek Orthodox, who would assert the idea that Mary should be revered, honored, and worshipped, and yet to the early church, she was not at all essential. To the early church, they recognized her, honored her as Jesus' mom, and on Mother's Day, we should do the same. Although I suspect raising Jesus was a little easier than raising my kids. So maybe we should not honor her as much. She had an easy pass. But the early church did not venerate her. They didn't put her on a pedestal. And sometimes we got to stop, pause, look at the text and say, huh. The early church doesn't stop and keep going, yeah, but Mary. Or, hey, we got to talk to Mary about this. They didn't see power in her. They saw power in Jesus. And so the early church carries out the mission that Jesus gave them. And look in verse 14. Because now the movement includes Jesus' brothers. This is actually the first time that they're now included in the group of believers. Which is also significant. Because Jesus' brothers originally thought he was crazy. Originally tried to have him arrested. You find in John 5, for even his brothers did not believe in him. So, early on, you're trying to start a movement, and even your family's going, nope, he's not the Messiah, that probably damages your ministry. But you find in 1 Corinthians 15, that amongst those that Jesus appeared to included his brother James, who goes on and writes the epistle, James. 1 Corinthians 15, 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So he appears to his brother first. So I'm guessing somewhere in here that watching your brother be crucified is pretty powerful. Watching your brother be resurrected from the dead would change your life. And it did for James. In fact, later on we'll find that James leads the church in Jerusalem. He takes over the biggest church as the disciples go out to reach the world, and his brothers will be mentioned again in the book, they become significant as Mary fades out. And Luke continues on as we press towards the main theme in this text. Verse 15, In those days Peter stood up amongst the brothers. The company of persons was about 120. Let's pause for a second there and realize that in Acts 1.15, the sum total of all believers in Christianity at that moment is 120 people. Friends, there are roughly 3 billion of us now. They did pretty well. They started small, and we'll come back to this number a couple of times as we move through this series. Because the church started as 120 faithful people. Depending on Jesus, depending on the Holy Spirit, and praying. Now, if you look around this morning, this gathering is bigger than that one. Which is to suggest that the power in this room is enormous. 
if we will believe in Jesus and work in the Holy Spirit and be bold about what Jesus did for us. That 120 is significant, and we'll come back to that as Luke pushes us to the crucial part about the Holy Spirit. Peter continues, because now he's speaking. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered amongst them and was allotted his share in the ministry. So Peter begins to explain to these 120 people about Judas. And yet, the main character for you to see on display is not Judas, it's the Holy Spirit. Because Judas was just the agent here by which the Holy Spirit was at work. Look at verse 16. The scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand. Friends, there's a truth here that we need to glean and lean into. And that's that the Holy Spirit has always been at work. Now, if you were just coming to this text and you see Jesus say, wait for the Holy Spirit, wait for the Holy Spirit, wait for the Holy Spirit, you jump to Acts 2 and, oh, the Holy Spirit comes, you might get the idea that the Holy Spirit was like a pitch hitter waiting on the pine for his number to be called, waiting for Jesus to leave, as if he is not this co-eternal, co-equal, powerful force in the Trinity, The Holy Spirit has always existed, just as Jesus has always existed. The Holy Spirit has always been at work, just as Jesus has always been at work, just as the Father has always been at work. In fact, you find the first direct reference to the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And you find him for the first time. And let's pause for a second and recognize this, some theological clarification. The Holy Spirit is a him. It is not an it. It is a serious theological challenge to call the Holy Spirit an it something that happens regularly amongst Christians, it'd be like me saying about your baby, oh, how old is it? And you would quickly tell me, it's a her. And in this case, God the Father would want you to know that the Holy Spirit's a him. The text will confirm it over and over and over again by its use of pronouns. Holy Spirit, a him. And throughout the Old Testament, we find the Holy Spirit at work. I'll give you one example. In the book of Isaiah, God prophesies to Jacob through Isaiah, saying this, For I will pour water on the thirsty land, streams on the dry ground, and I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Even in the Old Testament, the spirit being at work is forecasted as coming, as forecasted as being poured out. And friends, I think this is one of the necessities of this passage where it sits 
where it sits is to remind us that the Holy Spirit has always been and has always been at work. Always. And it forecasts for us and it tells us that the work of the Holy Spirit has always been invincible. It's the best word I can come up with. Meaning that it can't be refuted. It can't be turned back on. Let's look back at the text. The scriptures which the Holy Spirit spoke had to be fulfilled. The work of the Spirit is inescapable. It is the Spirit that is at work giving prophecy through the mouth of David in the Old Testament. And it's the Spirit at work bringing the prophecies to fulfillment as a means to testify to God's sovereignty, to testify to His power, and to testify to His care. And you'd find in these next several verses, that's what Peter wants to put on display for you through the life of Judas. Now, I think on one hand, you have to ask yourself, people would wonder what happened to Judas. Luke wants to reconcile that for you. On one hand, people would wonder where the Holy Spirit, what about it? And Luke is reconciling all of that for us in this passage. And you find in it... Peter was showing us the passages and their fulfillment. Look at the example given in verse 20. It says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. And in this verse you find a quote from Psalm 69, 25. Let his habitation become desolate, and let there be no one to live in it. And then the verse... And that verse is fulfilled in how Judas died and purchased a field by the blood money that became a desolate field of blood. You see that carried out in verses 17 through 19, which says, For he was numbered among us, and he was allotted his share in this ministry. And now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akadama, that is field of blood. Judas was well known in the whole city. And in fact, he was known to everybody. And that becomes important for these disciples as they carry on. But you find in the second half of verse 20, you find a quote from Psalm 109.8. Let his office... His office let another take. And you find that fulfillment in Judas being replaced by Matthias is described in the following five verses, starting in 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all that time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out amongst us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And so they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and that lot fell on Matthias. 
and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So what you find in this text, which I'll be honest with you, is probably the toughest text in the book of Acts to preach, is two things going on. Peter and Luke are helping us to reconcile the stories of Judas and the Holy Spirit and explaining how Matthias gets on board. That you have these disciples who were trained to go out. And as they're preparing to go out, they have to have their pairs. So they add another one. You'll find functionally in the book of Acts, these 12 guys serving as elders, we'll come back to that, uh, as we move through this book, because our church to this day and many churches have biblical elders who do the work of ministry. And we'll get to that. But friends, what this passage does from beginning to end is it testifies to the work of the Holy Spirit. Who is at work in David giving him the words of prophecy. And it is the Holy Spirit that is at work in the lives of the disciples bringing the prophecy to fulfillment. And friends, as we work through this book, You will see the Spirit coming alongside the disciples in every conceivable way. And we need to recognize that He is still at work everywhere and every day and in our lives. So next week, we're going to continue working in and talking about the Holy Spirit But this passage puts for us His eternal nature. Not just in the Trinity, but in Himself. Being the Holy Spirit. And His invincibility. Being that He has a force that cannot be denied. Next week we'll lean in further into the person and the work of Holy Spirit as it shows up in the book of Acts as a Example of what it looks like in our lives. So that we can continue to know the who who gives us strength. The who that gives us comfort. And the who that gives us the power to testify to the work of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Great Father, as we open up your word this morning. Father, we're reminded that you sent out your disciples for a reason. And it was to testify to your work. That these disciples didn't do it of their own power. They did it according to the Holy Spirit. And Father, just as you called them and put them together to send them out. Father, you sent them out two by two so that they'd have accountability. You sent them out two by two so that they'd have encouragement. And Father, they brought in a a twelfth to complete that. So that your work could go forward. So that even though, Father, you were calling them to trust in your spirit and to work in your spirit, you were still giving them physical encouragement. Father, I pray this morning that we would be edified knowing more and more about your Holy Spirit. Father, that we would know his eternal nature and that we would know his work. And Father, that we would be a people built up to know That your spirit, which we'll talk about next week, resides in us, walks with us, encourages us, comforts us, and 
gives us the power to testify to your Son. Father, thank you for sending your Spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen.